3: Before we get started, I want to let you know that Hitman contains graphic scenes of violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'm going to tell you about this book I found. If you saw it on a shelf, you might think it was a comic book or a silly pulp novel. The cover is purple, with a James Bond, Dick Tracy-looking guy on the front, wearing a bright yellow suit and a fedora. He's holding up a gun with a silencer attached. And behind him, there's this red outline of a body. And on the back cover is a crude drawing of handcuffs, a bottle of poison, a knife, some red gloves, and that same gun. The book's title even sounds kind of ridiculous. It's called Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. It was published in 1983 by a Colorado publisher called Paladin Press. Here's how the author, Rex Farrell, begins.
4: A woman recently asked how I could, in good conscience, write an instruction book on murder.
3: Oh, and we got an actor to read his lines.
4: How can you live with yourself if
5: someone uses what you write to go out and take a human life? She whined.
3: Rex Farrell has very specific tips for the aspiring contract killer. He writes step by step. You will learn where to find employment, how much to charge, and what you can and cannot do with the money you earn. And beyond all his logistical secrets, because this book is full of those, he takes it a step further. He walks you, as if you're his apprentice, through the mental preparation it takes for a person to commit murder. Like how to handle the emotions he says you won't feel after your first job.
4: You had wondered if you would feel compassion for the victim immediate guilt, or even experienced direct intervention by the hand of God. But you weren't even feeling sickened by the sight of
0: the body.
3: It's hard to get your hands on an actual copy of Hitman. And it's been out of print since 1999. I'd first discovered it when I was researching a story for another radio show. They wanted pitches about amateurs, stories of ineptitude and failure, but also people who'd stumbled into success despite dubious qualifications. That was five years ago. I thought it would be this little eight-minute piece. But it turned into this eight-episode podcast. On the back of the book, it says, Farrell is a hitman. He is the last recourse in these times when laws are so twisted that justice goes unserved. He is a man who controls his destiny through his private code of ethics who feels no twinge of guilt at doing his job. He is a professional killer. Rex Farrell talks a lot about how to stay anonymous, and he recommends using a fake name, especially when renting a car or checking into a hotel. It's obvious he did this when he wrote his book. The name Rex Farrell is too perfect. Farrell literally means wild. He wants you to think he's dangerous. So of all the mysteries around this book, The biggest one is Farrell's true identity. The publisher has always protected the author. Their real name can't be found in court documents. And it's never come out in public, which is fitting. Because in his book, he promises that he'll always remain elusive. That he'll never be caught.
4: If my advice and the proven methods in this book are followed, certainly no one will ever know.
3: But I wanted to know who would write an instruction manual for murder and why. So I initially set out to find this Rex Farrell. But the truth behind this book was so much bigger.
6: He followed it step by step to come in and murder my family.
5: Some of this you could figure out without a book, some of it you couldn't. Some of it is bordering on, you know, do we really want to tell people this? Because it's kind of evil. You know, how do you go after a book? I don't care what it says, this shit cannot be protected by the First Amendment.
1: Motown's legacy is Motown's legacy. Everyone who's there, whatever they did, good, bad, what they say, and the ugly, <laughs> you know, it's all part of the legacy.
4: I got woke up in the wee hours of the morning there
0: had been an explosion, and they would located a dead body. He was obviously good at concealing his identity. He literally just kind of fell off the face of the earth.
3: I'm Jasmine Morris from iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. This is Hitman. I learned very quickly that no one wants to talk about this book. Certainly not the publisher. Back in 2015, I made a phone call to Paladin Press, and I asked if I could speak with someone about Hitman. There was a long pause from the person on the other end, and the call lasted about 10 seconds. I still haven't been able to get anyone from Paladin on the phone or to answer my emails. In later episodes, we're going to explore the whole bizarre story of Paladin, but for now here's what you need to know. The publisher began in Colorado in 1970 founded by two Vietnam veterans named Pedar Lund and Robert K. Brown. In earlier photos, they're often posing with guns, wearing military fatigues, bandanas across their foreheads. Lund looks just like Martin Sheen from Apocalypse Now. At one point, the company website said they named their press Paladin after the knights who served in Charlemagne's court in 8th century France. Knights who were, quote, dispatched by the king to redress wrongs in the land. Brown would eventually start the mercenary magazine Soldier of Fortune, while Lunn soldiered on at Paladin, publishing books with titles like Be Your Own Undertaker, How to Dispose of a Dead Body, and Sneak It Through, Smuggling Made Easier. In the 80s, they got into the video business, putting out instructional tapes like the lockpicking guide, b and to Z, How to Get in Anywhere, Anytime.
2: Getting into everything from padlocks to bank vaults, you're going to see us steal a of Mercedes, Corvette, Ferrari. We are going to blow up a safe. We're going to use burning bars. We're going to use everything can be done to get in someplace.
3: As the company website said, quote, Paladin readers seek knowledge and information that some people think should remain secret or unpublished. Remember when they started, it was long before the internet. Lund was a First Amendment fundamentalist and he wanted to set this information free.
5: There was just nothing that these guys wouldn't sell.
3: That's attorney Howard Siegel. I can hear Howard if he could be a little louder.
5: Jasmine, you're absolutely the first person in the history of Western civilization who has ever asked me to be louder. My wife would be astounded that somebody asked me to be louder. Yeah, go ahead.
3: Howard's been an attorney for 45 years, often taking on cases no one else will. He's bombastic and unfiltered and not afraid to make his opinions known which made him a worthy opponent of Peter lunds But we'll get into that later.
5: I remember one description of how to build a baby bottle bomb in one of his books. That was a bomb that was literally in a baby bottle, and you would wheel the baby into a crowded marketplace. That's how you would kill innocent people. and didn't bother Lund in the slightest.
3: I mean, here's Lund himself back in the 90s being interviewed by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes.
5: Terrorists would certainly be interested in what you publish. They Wouldn't might, they? Be, they might be, no. absolutely. And this doesn't worry you, the fact that— No, it does not.
3: And later, when asked about a book tied to the Oklahoma City bombing, the domestic terrorist attack in 1995 that killed 168 people, Lund says this.
5: I feel no responsibility. I have no ethical responsibility for the misuse of information. That's what this whole issue is about, the misuse, the illegal use of information.
3: Lund died in 2017, and Paladin shut down shortly afterward. But I did speak with Tom Kelly, the press lawyer who defended Paladin in a landmark First Amendment case that we're going to talk a whole lot about. Not surprisingly, his take on Paladin's catalog was a little different than Howard's.
5: Paladin has a niche market, a very eclectic mixture of nonfiction. They focus on libertarian values, self-help strategies, survivalism, knowledge of weapons and explosives, but they also include esoteric topics like quite a range of odd hobbies or the spiritual life of the Lakota Sioux Indians and that sort of thing. One of the best-selling series of Paladin was the Revenge series, including Screw Unto Others, Revenge Tactics for All Occasions.
3: I've also seen Paladin be described as the most dangerous publisher in America or something like that.
5: Well, I... You yeah, know, I think that's preposterous. The books published are very unlikely to be the cause of criminal conduct, murder, mayhem, what have you.
3: This conversation is so relevant right now. What do we do with this kind of speech and information? Every few days, it seems, there's another mass shooting tied to some kind of radicalized viral online hate. So we have to ask, can horrendous ideas cause horrendous acts of violence? And are the platforms that perpetuate those ideas responsible? Paladin's publisher Peter Lund once said, I've never seen a man killed by a book. Which brings us to the 1993 murders of Millie and Trevor Horn and Janice Saunders.
7: We were like, what? A book? that's published? It tells you how to kill? And really, we could not believe that something like this was published. We had three people who were dead, had been murdered, and this book was used. It made me angry. I was already angry when I understood the book, and I became even more angry.
3: That's Marilyn Farmer. She's telling me about her sister, Millie Horn, a 43-year-old single mom with three kids, an older daughter, Tiffany, and twins, Tamiel and Trevor.
7: We all remember her, her beautiful smile, her red lips. She loved red lipstick her, infectious laughter, and just happy, loving life. We used to tease her because Millie had blonde hair, and she had green eyes, and she was fair-skinned, and she had a presence about her.
3: That presence, it comes through in stories and photographs of Millie. I've heard people use words like magnetic when describing her. I've also heard determined, prideful, fearless, and regal. She's also been described as a really good mom. Here's her daughter, Tiffany.
6: I can honestly say she invested her heart and soul in raising me. She also was that cool mom, you know, and she definitely was more carefree. Like, she took me to see (laughs) Flashdance. Like, I will never forget that. Like, what mother takes their daughter to see a movie about strippers?
1: How old were
6: you? (laughs) I was like eight years old. (laughs) She didn't know it was that kind of (laughs) dancing.
3: Millie was fiercely protective of her children, which became especially clear to everyone when she gave birth to her twins. They were born three months premature. Tamiel had no major health complications, but Trevor's lungs were underdeveloped, and he was in critical condition. When he finally came home from the hospital, he had a tracheostomy tube in his throat, and he was hooked up to an apnea monitor which would sound an alarm if he stopped breathing. He required 24-hour nursing care.
5: Trevor was profoundly disabled.
3: That's Howard Siegel again.
5: He was what many people would consider to be the ultimate burden. And uh, these people treated him like he was the ultimate gift.
7: He was our miracle child. I would have a bad day at work and I would come in and walk in their room and who's there chuckling away at me?
3: Tiffany was nine when the twins were born, and she remembers that close bond Millie and Trevor shared.
6: My mom was his everything. Like a mother-son love you could not imagine. And it was almost like she was the love of his life, and I think my mom had been looking for that connection for a long time.
7: On Sunday, February 5th, 1989, I have Tammy Yale. What are you doing, Trevor?
3: this This is footage from a home video Marilyn shared with me. That's her voice you're hearing. Trevor, now four years old, is lying on a Smurfs blanket on the floor in his bedroom, which was the heart of Millie's house. They actually called it the family room. His cousins and siblings are playing with him, tickling him. His mouth is wide open with the biggest smile. He just radiates joy. You can see it on everyone's faces and then his mother, Millie, gets down on the floor with him.
1: Oh, Ma, what are you talking about,
7: Trevor? Sit up and get my hug. Come sit up, Mama. There, look at come Trevor. On. Come on. Come on Mama. Where are you going? Oh, oh, where's Trevor? Trevor, turn over. get oh, Trevor I'm laughing. Look at Trevor laughing. There.
3: Just like every other night, around 7, 7.15 p.m., on March 2nd, 1993. Trevor gets a bath and is rocked to sleep in a rocking chair in his room. If it wasn't Millie doing this, it'd be one of the nurses she recruited to help care for Trevor. Janice Saunders arrives around 8 p.m. to work the night shift. Janice isn't supposed to be there that night, but she agreed to fill in for another nurse who couldn't make it. As was routine, she flashes her headlights, letting the day nurse know she's in the driveway. The garage door opens for her, She pulls in and closes the garage door behind her. The nurse being relieved debriefs Janice, telling her Trevor was doing very well clinically. She says he was enjoyable and very happy that they'd had a very pleasant day. Millie Horn, a flight attendant with American Airlines, is scheduled to fly out around 8 a.m. Tammy L's sleeping over at her aunt's. Janice settles in for the night. Just before midnight... A man parks his rental car in Silver Spring, Maryland. He carries a hand-drawn map as he walks to Millie's big brick house nearby. This is the X on his map. Millie is asleep upstairs. Trevor is asleep in his room. Janice sits by his side, cross-stitching and watching over the boy. At around 2 AM, she logs his vitals, continued to sleep quietly, respiratory status stable, lungs clear, diaper dry. Her notes show that she started to write more, and then no one knows exactly what happened next. But here's what investigators piece together. The man approaches the back of the house, carrying an AR-7 rifle loaded with 22 caliber ammunition and a homemade silencer affixed to the barrel. He pries open a basement window or possibly the sliding back door. He walks through the first floor of the house toward Trevor's bedroom finds Janice Saunders and shoots her through the eye. He then approaches Trevor's crib and smothers the boy. Trevor stops breathing, which sets off the piercing alarm of Zapnia monitor. Just as she had done many times in the past, Millie hears the alarm and heads downstairs to check on Trevor. It's when she comes face to face with the man at the foot of the stairs. He shoots her in the head three times. Again, through the eye. Before the man leaves, he tosses furniture and takes Millie's credit cards. He takes his gun, disassembles it, and runs a rat-tail file down the inside of his AR-7. He grabs Millie's keys, and he takes off in her van, tossing her credit cards and the gun parts into the brush along the highway. He abandons her van, and he gets back into his rental car, making one last stop to a payphone at a Denny's nearby.
1: I gave a call? No.
3: It's cryptic, but investigators believe this was a hitman calling his employer to report he'd completed his job. We'll be right back after a quick break.
0: It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish listen to fallen angels a story of california corruption on the iheart radio app apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts
8: the therapy for black girls podcast is an naacp and webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health personal development and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves here And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll
3: see you there. When I first reached out to Tiffany Horn, it'd been 25 years since her family was completely torn apart.
6: After several years or or decades, the families that deal with this type of horrendous trauma are constantly dealing with the fallout. It never goes away. And it's a lonely existence sometimes to be part of that because you become almost like a pariah and it's too painful for people to want to deal with.
3: I keep coming back to this moment in the home video that Marilyn shared with me. When Tiffany turns the camera on her mom. Mom! Did you go to church today? Yes, I did. What did you do?
7: Sat in
8: church and tried to listen
3: to. Them. And what else did you do? Yeah, but we're about just you. <laughs> Tiffany was just a teenager when she lost her mom. She's now outlived Millie by a year. She's a 44-year-old single mother of two. She travels as much as she can. She loves music and God, and she's tough. By that I mean she doesn't let anyone walk all over her she'll put you in your place. She first answered my call in March of 2018. We had many more phone calls before she agreed to meet with me. And even then, she was reluctant. She still is. She doesn't trust easily for good reason. Why are you sitting here with me today?
6: I feel it's important to tell some details and some parts of my story that I don't think I've ever really talked about before. Even just talking to you today, I can't have these conversations really with anyone. Now my kids have grown up and they're moving on to live their adult lives. And I guess I'm left now with, oh wow, there's all these things that I'm still having to kind of sort through about my dad, about my mom, about my family.
3: The morning of March 3rd, 1993, Tiffany got a phone call to her dorm room at Howard University in Washington, D.C.
6: I'll never forget. They called me from the lobby and they said that the police were there for me and my heart stopped. They just said, can you come with us? So that was like a 45, 50-minute drive and I just remember being back at the cruiser just crying and crying and crying because I didn't know what would have happened, but I knew it must be something awful. So I had almost a whole hour to go through all these different scenarios. And I just remember thinking immediately maybe my mom's plane had crashed or something. Like I used to have those fears as a child, so that was the first thing that came to my mind. I'm, at that point, inconsolable. So I run into the house, and I just collapsed into my on Elaine's arms, screaming and crying. And that's when my grandmother was in the background wailing that he killed my daughter, this primal wail of pain. And then that's when my my aunt told me that my mother, my brother, and his nurse, Janice, had been murdered.
3: Tiffany's aunt, Millie's sister, Vivian Elaine Rice, lived next door to Millie. She was the first one to discover the scene around 7.15 a.m. At first, everyone pointed their fingers at Millie's ex-husband and father of her three children, Lawrence Horn. But he was 3,000 miles away at the time. And as we'll learn, he had an airtight alibi.
4: I was responsible for the investigation and prosecution of what we call the triple murder for hire of Trevor and Mildred and Janice Saunders.
3: Robert Dean is a career prosecutor based in Montgomery County, Maryland. After I reached out, he responded immediately. He was working in Myanmar at the time, and we met up just days after he returned to the States.
4: Police didn't always ask me to come out to the crime scene, but they thought this was the type of case where it was appropriate. So I did. It was a very somber and and, and solemn site. There was the the body of Mildred Horn at the bottom of the stairs. There was the body of a a child with clearly life support type of apparatus, oxygen tanks and, and, and wires and so forth. By his side was Jonathan Saunders, one of his care nurses.
3: Bob Dean still calls this the biggest case he's ever had, It was one of the most exhaustive investigations in Montgomery County history. Whoever had committed this crime had managed to leave no fingerprints behind. They didn't have much to go on, so the police set off on foot, canvassing the area for clues.
7: And they told us they had found someone from Detroit who signed into a hotel, stayed like six hours and then left.
3: This man from Detroit had checked into a nearby Days Inn around midnight and had checked out by 6 a.m., the morning of the murders. There could have been plenty of innocent explanations, but it still seemed weird.
4: This was clearly an interstate matter. And by this time, we had asked the FBI for
2: assistance.
3: And investigators from the Detroit FBI office decided to pay okay, the man a, a visit.
2: Surveillance units. We should be on that house in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to have the handheld with us. This
3: is the uh, actual tape from that day. 9/7. They're outside the man's small brick house in East Detroit. Yes, sir
2: Perry? you doing? Hey, Sir Bob Casey, FBI. Well... You me know, cover this quick lead here that I got from a Baltimore office. Okay. What they're looking at is um, they check some hotels, I guess, on Days Inn, Gaithersburg area, Rockville, Maryland. Right. And they have information that you stayed there. I know it's going back a long time. Yeah. And, uh, but March 2nd and 3rd of this year. Okay. Well, first March. of all, March, okay. First of all, they want to confirm if it was in fact you or is somebody still your ID, did you lose your ID or something like that. Uh, no, I was there in, uh, in that area. Okay. And, yeah. Second, can you tell us why you were there? Well, for, can I ask you why you were asking this question? Uh, and
3: eventually, he answers the FBI agents. I was
2: on business. Business. Church-related business. Sure. Okay.
3: The man being questioned is James Edward Perry. He was around 45 years old at the time. He had a criminal record. He'd been in prison for armed robbery. But he'd served his time and now worked for himself as a radio minister and spiritual advisor.
2: Okay. Go, you know, I, I travel across this country. I've okay. got probably maybe four or 5,000 people that I, okay. I uh, counsel and, and, and minister to. And we are into basically now trying to help people uh, with the problems that they possibly have. So I
3: found this surveillance photo of him. He's wearing a trench coat and a prayer cap. He's got aviator sunglasses hanging around his neck. He's very stylish. Perry called himself a case buster. He helped with things like choosing lottery numbers and counseling people on their marriages.
2: There are people that feel as though there's certain things happening in their lives. They have witchcraft, uh, they have pains in their body. Uh, We pray for them and we we attempt to give them a positive attitude. It's my belief is that whatever it is, if you think that you're healthy, then you'll be healthy doesn't make any okay. difference what you have. you have, cancer, or what have you. Okay. That can be absolved. Sure. I'm going to
3: take okay. you through all the twists and turns of this investigation. But just know that eventually, investigators executed a search warrant on Perry's house.
2: And he
4: had kind of a storefront, I don't want to call it a church, but I guess that's what we will call it. We'll call it a church. He had a little, little calling card. And there was a Soldier of Fortune magazine. And then there was a catalog for Paladin Press. Sure enough, we learned that James Perry had in fact ordered these two books, How to Be a Hitman by Rex Farrell and this book on how to make disposable silencers. We ordered, of course, these books as well.
3: Do you remember the first time you saw that book?
4: Yeah, I do. I I, I looked at it and I, I couldn't believe it. I don't want to say I was appalled. For a minute, I thought it was a joke. It's kind of just a gag gift. But you know, I got to thinking that maybe... You know, some people take it seriously, and, and Perry was interested in it.
3: Investigators found striking similarities between the tips found in Hitman and the murders of Millie, Trevor, and Janice. The first item on Farrell's basic equipment checklist, an AR-7 rifle, which investigators believe was used in these murders. Shoot at close range, quote, aim for the head, preferably the eye sockets if you are a sharpshooter. Establish a base at a motel in close proximity to the job site before committing the murders. Farrell says pay cash, which James Perry did, and to check in using a fictitious name. But this day's in had a rule. If paying with cash, you had to show your ID.
4: I guess the flaw is that he used his correct identification.
3: If he hadn't done that, do you think you would have found him? I
4: don't know. If he used a phony name and had a phony ID, I, I don't know that we would have.
3: One of the attorneys I spoke with early on in this story said he didn't want Hitman in his house. He compared it to a loaded pistol or a vial of poison. I know what he means. Hitman's sitting next to me right now, and it does have a certain cloud around it. I generally keep it in one place, and I don't like it to touch other things in my office, almost like it's some kind of contaminant. This book, it hurt a lot of people, and we don't even really know how many. And if this is a story about accountability, about who's truly responsible when bad things happen, about who carries the burden of remorse, there's still someone who's never spoken about their role in all of it. One day, buried in something like 500 pages of court documents that a lawyer emailed me, I finally came across some correspondence between paladin and professional killer Rex Farrell the editorial director of Paladin, was writing with good news. Enclosed, you will find two copies of the contract for Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. Sign two copies with a witness and return both to us. I was about to get my first glimpse of the person behind the book. Here's what he wrote back to Paladin. My main concern in offering this type of material for publication is the possibility of litigation from people who might misuse the materials in my books. So the real Rex Farrell might've had a conscience after all. It's easy to speculate what Farrell's intentions were in writing Hitman. To some, it's not a question. I mean, he wrote a murder manual. To others, it reads as entertainment or a joke, a joke that James Perry might've used to murder three people. But after reading through this exchange, at least one thing becomes clear about Farrell. Again, he writes, By the way, in answer to your question and that of Mr. Lund. I get my materials from books, television, movies, newspapers, police officers, my karate instructor, and a good friend who is an attorney. No, I am not a hitman. I don't even own a gun. But don't tell anybody. Next on Hitman.
6: My dad stole everything. I knew in my heart of hearts that he was involved. He destroyed my life. Like, my family was gone. It's never been the same for me.
7: We all knew did it. So we knew it was Lawrence Horn. I mean, I knew. Who else? Who would have benefited from Trevor dying? Who would walk in the house and kill an innocent child?
0: At the time that you married Millie Murray, uh, did you love her? Huh. No.
3: Hitman is a production of iHeartRadio and Hit Home Media. It's produced and reported by me, Jasmine Morris. Our supervising producer is Michelle Lance. Mark Lotto is our story consultant. Executive producers are Mangesh Hatikudur and me, mixing by Josh Rogeson and Jacopo Penzo. Our fact checker is Austin Thompson. Our theme song is written and produced by Dime, powered by the Detroit Institute of Music Education. In special thanks to Andrew Goldberg, Tori Paquette, Michael Garofalo, Nikki Etor, Tristan McNeil, and Taylor Chicoin.